This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Bumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And today we're talking about the food on our plates and how it gets there. I know I'm stating the obvious here, but food is something that we think about every single day, multiple times a day. The need to eat requires us to make choices. And eating is literally the most intimate way we engage with the outside world, by ingesting parts of it. And what we ingest, what makes it to our dinner plates? Well, it carries a lot of weight and says a lot about who we are and what we value, in a nutritional sense, as well as a social sense. To a certain extent, we've all become aware of this. The rise of organic foods in the grocery aisle and farm-to-table on the restaurant menu speaks to this kind of understanding. But the system that's delivering that food to your plate is so much more complex than a label. And that's what today's episode is about. We invited two people who think a lot about food to this year's Crosscut Festival to share what they see when they look at our food systems. Eddie Hill is a co-founder of the Black Food Sovereignty Coalition and director of the Black Farm Bureau, where he works to advance environmental, economic, and social justice. Robert Parlberg is an emeritus professor of political science at Wellesley College and an associate in the sustainability science program at the Harvard Kennedy School. He's also the author of Resetting the Table, Straight Talk About the Food We Grow and Eat. In this conversation with Grist staff writer Kate Yoder, Hill and Parlberg tangle with the food system's biggest problems, discuss whether a focus on local and organic foods is actually solving some of those problems, and, of course, share what they see as the best course forward to a healthier future for everyone. This conversation and all other conversations on the science and environment track at the 2022 Crosscut Festival is sponsored by John S. Adams, CFP, and UBS, which would like to share the following message. The Arbor Group at UBS has a straightforward mission to help you make the world a better place. Through personal financial planning and sustainable investment management, the Arbor Group works with each of their clients to pursue that client's specific goals. Learn more by visiting ubs.com team slash the Arbor Group. I hope you enjoy this conversation. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. So Rob, Eddie, welcome, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much. So I guess first to start off, I just want to know more about the work that you're both doing. Um, so Eddie, could you tell us about the projects that you've been working on in the Northwest lately? Oh, um, yeah, thank you. And good morning, everybody. Um, nice to meet you, Robert and Kate. Much appreciated. Um, really exciting times in a lot of ways. Also, um, it's, 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 um, most of the projects we are doing right now are what we're calling or shifting language to in terms of direct action. So we've got a post COVID environment. Um, we have data that 
from this event that happens every, well, now we, you know, 100 years. Um, so we have a global series of global health and supply chain impacts that have caused us to adjust as an organization. Um, what we originally started with was more of a not band-aid approach, but a training program that would stretch out three to five years. A lot of the work because of COVID, COVID has condensed down to 18 to 24 month turnarounds on farmer training, uh, basic food systems, uh, awareness, more immersive and more hands-on practical applications like a emergency management response versus a, hey, we have 10 years to solve a hunger problem or a housing problem. And uh, a lot of the work we're doing now is turning, uh, leaving brick and mortar and going into mobility. So mobile food trucks, mobile food delivery systems, electrifying those projects. Portland is one of the, uh, Robert, in one of your, um, uh, one of the speeches or one of the presentations I saw, um, we were talking about the electric, the electrification of um, the food system and, you know, re not reducing vehicle miles, but shifting vehicle miles to electric and solar uh, charging stations. So in Portland is one of those cities uh, that you mentioned, uh, similar to Seattle, that has taken sugar tax. So a lot of that money's coming down to the streets now, Portland Clean Energy Fund. Uh, there's a, a, a lot of the funders have shifted their their focus on, on food systems now in a way that public health was doing t 10 years ago. So uh, launching farms, there's a lot of dollars coming to, from the Fed for either purchasing or covering the cost of leasing to own farmland. So we're scrambling to look for farmland now, uh, whereas we didn't have those dollars before COVID and we're still debating them uh, with Congress. Uh, the Recovery Act money, like the $8 billion for mm -hmm. farmers, that's still held up in court. So a lot of other infrastructure dollars have come down and we've captured that money under the banner of green workforce and uh, energy efficiency and renewables, uh, re re regenerative soil, uh, so securing farms, securing food facilities. There's a lot of empty restaurants and food kitchens to produce, make value-added products. And then we're doing a lot more partnerships with uh, community health services and wraparound services to act not just as a fresh food delivery like we did during COVID, a box of food to somebody in a motel or hotel is not going to help. So working on prepackaged or prepared foods, either frozen or uh, ready to eat for uh, challenged populations. But then there's a high price point right now for food delivery. So we're kind of balancing a new economy, uh, trying to build a new economy uh, based on the uh, what we've been left with, with post-COVID. So I'll leave it at that, get in some details later. But there's a lot of transactional money shifting, a lot more money than most community-based organizations have have been able to manage or understand that they can have. And we're helping to facilitate that community capacity building as well. So the infrastructure and community to manage this money is definitely not in place because it's never been there. So uh, multiple things, multiple times, we'll get into it further, but that's basically what's happening in Portland and Seattle. We're doing regional food shed work. Gotcha. Yeah, that's great. It's it's great to hear about that work. And I love that focus on direct action. I think that's like, everyone's wondering what, what can we do now? Yeah. Um, and Rob, I want to hear about the work you've been doing too. I know you have a new book called Resetting the Table. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the book and why you wrote it? 
Yes, uh, it's great to be here with Kate and also with uh, with Eddie. I'm an independent academic researcher on issues in global food policy, and, and I taught a course by that title at the Harvard Kennedy School. But my my new book, which my publicist at Knopf says I should never miss a chance to actually show people uh, the book, a new book called "Resetting the Table: Straight Talk About the Food We Grow and Eat." was written with America's dietary health crisis in mind. People know this, but it's important to be reminded how poor the American diet really is. 42% of adults in the United States are now clinically obese, which 42%, that is three times uh, the level of the 1960s. We eat too much meat. We eat 20 to 60% more meat than dietary guidelines would call for. We don't eat enough fruits and vegetables. Only one in 10 Americans, one in 10 Americans eats the recommended daily uh, portions of fruits and vegetables. These things in combination have given us um, a burden of chronic disease, type two diabetes, uh, stroke, uh, heart disease, um, cancer. Uh, obesity related diseases are now taking the lives of 300,000 Americans every year, according to the National Institutes of Health. So um, my book is designed to explain how we got into this <laughs> trouble, to find the explanations that are supported by the evidence, and also to uh, critique some of the explanations that aren't really supported by the evidence. It's obvious, uh, probably to, to your audience, that uh, the big reason for this crisis is the kind of food that uh, food manufacturing companies and the food service industry surrounds us with. We live in a swamp of unhealthy foods, uh, even at the supermarket. 70% of the foods at the supermarket are considered unhealthy by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Uh, we, uh, uh, these products are designed by companies to be virtually addictive. They put in just the right mixture of salt, sugar, and fat. They ultra-process these foods so that um, they hit a, a bliss point in our mouth. And uh, that triggers the, the reward circuit in our brain. And so we crave eating them again, even though we're not hungry yet. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, we could talk later about the possible policy responses to that, to that problem, uh, but uh, I'll leave it there for now. Yeah, that makes sense. I definitely noticed walking around the grocery store, it's like, you know, you get to that chip section and you're like, this looks pretty good. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to think about how all of those larger designs are contributing to, to unhealthy eating. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And it's, it's, it's not just the grocery store. When, when I go to my local CVS pharmacy, mm -hmm. in, in, order to, in order to fill a prescription, I have to walk through the candy aisle. So in, in a single visit, I can try to protect my health and ruin my health at a pharmacy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good observation. Um, so I went to, you know, <laughs> what did you say? I said agreed. <laughs> agreed. Um, so I know we have limited time today, so I just wanted to get into the really big questions. Um, first off, I wanted to know, you know, what do each of you see as the biggest problem with the U.S. food system today? Um, and maybe, Rob, you can go first. Well, I think I, inadvertently, uh, I, I just described that a minute ago. It's, it's poor dietary health, worsening dietary health. And, 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 and it's a problem that I do not trace to, um, to behavioral weakness on the part of 
eaters in America, the food companies that surround us with these unhealthy, addictive items say, oh, well, what you eat is your responsibility. You're putting it in your mouth. It's not us. We're giving you what you want. It's a, it's a question of personal responsibility. And that just can't be the explanation for our poor dietary health. I mentioned that our obesity rate today is three times as high as it was in the 1960s. It can't possibly be true that American eaters are three times as irresponsible as they were in the 1960s. It's the food environment created by uh, food companies, retailers, and the food service industry that has us uh, trapped in, uh, in an unhealthy eating pattern. Yeah, I think questions about personal responsibility are always so interesting. I cover climate change at Grist. And so thinking about the ways that, you know, our systems are set up to make it difficult to make, you know, the, the low carbon choice or the healthy choice, I think, is always interesting. Like, yes, there can be a degree of personal responsibility, but we have to think about these bigger, bigger systems that are driving these decisions. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. And uh, Eddie, I also want to hear your your response to the question, the big question, what do you see as the biggest problem, the food system today? I think there is, and I agree, I, I, I agree with you, Robert, on the, the, the lack of control or the lack of uh, self-control, partially. And, you know, in some ways, I do think uh, Americans have become three times less um, self-informed or three times less interested in supporting democracy. So I think there's a cascade in general of a loss of what systems mean. And as an urban planner, my professional background is urban planner, uh, food systems uh, design and planning uh, out of the University of Washington, and uh, just a lot of uh, analyzing systems. And growing up, I'm very much a George Plimpton kind of journalist. I have a degree in journalism and started as a journalist, not a farmer. Uh, but then I started farming like George Plimpton said, you can't write about something or discuss it if you don't do it. So uh, having the experience of becoming a farmer and living out, I think my great grandfather, great great grandfather was one of the builder, uh, child laborer at Tuskegee University. So I think the 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 problems of the food system for African-Americans, specifically uh, former, formerly enslaved populations and indigenous populations, that impact has been America plus, you know, or America multiplied by a factor of two in terms of health impacts, watching my family die from those diseases at an early age in their 40s and 50s in the last generation uh, for me. Uh, drove me to be a vegan for 16 years. And I'm now one of, you know, I beat my grandfather, my dad's father and his brother and two uncles. I beat their age, right? So I'm 56, they all died pre-55 for alcohol, diabetes, heart, uh, angina, things like that. So yes, we have a nutritional deficit in the food. Yes, we have a soil that's been hyper abused and not regenerated. Uh, we have composting and food waste um, systems that don't function in support of restoring and maintaining our ecosystem. Uh, we have a commercial food system that globally has failed to produce numbers that they thought they were gonna produce and now they're focusing on the US, speaking specifically to Bill Gates and 
the green revolution in Africa and India, which didn't work for folks. So now we buy up the U.S. So I think a lot of the problems, well, we don't buy it up. Private companies buy it up. So I think one of the problems or several of the problems connected because it's a food system. So it's not delinked. It's like mycelium and mushrooms, right? They talk to all the trees and communicate messages. So just putting nutrition in people doesn't, because I know a lot of rich, uh, informed people who eat a lot of fancy food that still do horrible things on the planet. So healthy food and have lots of nutrition in their bodies. Uh, so the, the drivers of this, this problem are both natural. We have biophysical and environmental drivers. We have innovation and technology that's trying to cram itself into the food system right now to fix it. And political, economic, and sociocultural drivers like racism in the food system or marginalization of workers or lack of paying of uh, people for what they're actually worth at the back of the deck, farmers call it, where you actually sell your vegetables. Third-party companies that are consuming land and consuming assets. Uh, we have wars globally happening right now that are affecting and showing us that our nitrogen-based uh, fertilizers and access to supplies globally are shutting down because of the war. So if we if, if we look at what the real problems for me and the way we've approached it from Black Food Sovereignty Coalition and in the Pacific Northwest food shed is to operate sort of a food district or food zone, right? Food shed. And we know that Portland and Seattle are connected in the bioregion of the Cascade, of Cascadia or the Cascade region of the country. And we know that we're a blue zone. We know that people are migrating here. We know that land is being purchased. And what the problems we are seeing are coming home into the Northwest now that everybody's looking at the Northwest as one of the last, the last places that will be above ground during a flood that will be have fresh water, have, has mountains, has a diversity of, of, of uh, land and, and topography that can start to feed, country, uh, not countries, states like California is losing water. So the problems for me are multiple and it requires an interdisciplinary approach and, uh, and it requires uh, a level of um, interconnectedness and social ecology that I think is absent from the culture in the United States right now. And that's, I think there's a social issue. I agree with Robert on the nutritional issues, but just feeding people well is not gonna solve the problem. It's, it's a combination of reintegrating the food system at all levels of our lives. Food as, an, as a utility, food as an infrastructure versus food as a solution to a specific social problem that will then unpack and you know things will be, not rosy, you didn't say that, but you know the uh, sort of a public health approach like we tried with the bodegas. If you put vegetables in the store or fruit on the counter, then people eat it. Nah, not really. You know, there's a culture underneath that. Why are we doing this? The, the re-education of people about home economics and land management are things that have been absent in the schools for a very long time. So uh, I think it's a combination of effects that are now coming home to show us that what we did before is not gonna work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really insightful. And it's helpful to think about all of these complicated factors that are coming together. Um, and I feel like there's a question implicit in that for Rob, too. I mean, do you do you see the root of this of these problems as partly like social and cultural? 
Well, food systems are very different in different parts of the world. I do uh, quite a bit of my work in, uh, in rural Africa. And the food system in rural Africa is, uh, it, it couldn't be more different from the food systems in, uh, in Seattle or Boston, where I live. Um, most, most rural Africans are, they produce food for a living. That's their occupation. They're mostly women. Um, and they don't have any of the things that farmers in the rest of the world have used to escape poverty. They don't have irrigation. They don't have electricity. They don't have adequate road systems to bring in the fertilizer or to market their products. They don't have veterinary medicine for their uh, animals. And as a result, the productivity of their labor is extremely low. Their crop yields are only one third as high as crop yields in, in other developing country regions. Uh, so no matter how hard they, they work, they uh, remain stuck in poverty and their, and their children uh, remain uh, stunted and, and uh, undernourished. What I find, what I find a little uh, strange to think about is that uh, because these farmers don't use any synthetic chemical fertilizers or pesticides, they're de facto organic. And because their road systems are so poor, uh, it's too expensive to move, move food around. So they are de facto local. This is an organic local food system that uh, is not serving, not serving uh, the welfare of, of the farmers in question. So I, I don't, uh, I don't, I, I want to specify what part of the globe we're talking about uh, before I try to diagnose uh, food system problems. Yeah, I think it's super important to understand uh -huh. that what works in one place might not work in another place and that you have to understand the local conditions. Agreed. And we could say in Africa that we still have we still have similar ways to analyze the conditions or why they're in that condition and why mm -hmm. the conditions are perpetuated through economic models through or through external European or Western influence models through Western ideas of money and monetary systems and how uh, I've been to Ghana, I've been to South Africa, worked US uh, AID on solar energy projects right when South Africa was in the uh, year zero with no water. Um, and uh, yes, Africa is different. Uh, there's 51, 52 countries, three, 53 countries now. And yes, they're all different. And I could say that they're all damaged and still facing the, uh, the uh, impacts of colonialism and um, the uh, political and economic challenges of restoring systems and restoring ecological systems and socio-cultural is uh, traditional practices that, you know, that have sustained people locally or regionally in ways that doesn't have to deliver to market. You said a lot of folks are subsistence farmers, most definitely. There's tribes that are specific farmers, like in Kenya. And the way that business, there was a composting program in Ghana that we went and visited and folks had come from USAID, they had built the facility, they had employed people to make compost and bag things up. 
And then when the company left, they took all the equipment. And then like the, comp the, the, the community was left with sort of trying to figure out how to supply that. The company was like, well, that's our equipment. We brought it to, to, to use, but didn't train anybody. So you didn't leave any management, didn't leave any systems or uh, architecture systems and infrastructure to continue that, that plan, nor was there succession planning in a lot of that work. So there, it, it's not like there's just a clean slate and people just, you know, and again, like you said, Africa is a different place. So that organic model of local and applying the same standards to that being, yes, non-chemical, which is a better way to run in most time, most conditions for agriculture anywhere in the world without chemicals mostly works. Again, I, I'm not an either or, I'm a both and, right? A little mm -hmm. bit of colonialism and economic models need to match with the traditional earth knowledges of managing like forests. Like, you know, in the U.S., agroforestry agro, uh, agro could be improved significantly with the in introduction and inclusion equitably of traditional native practices of forest management. We now know that. We have enough stories, enough data, enough people have talked. We've got enough equity roadmaps now in colleges and universities to know that half of the things that people on the planet that have been doing been here in this region for 10,000, 20,000 years, some of those things do work and they can be integrated with technology like a dissolvable hemp sensors that RFID chips and things that track things, you know, Monsanto's doing that work. So instead of, instead of um, uh, exacerbating the problem, we're trying to solve the problem and say, well, Africans aren't ready to make this change. It's like, well, maybe if you got out of the way, they would, you, just, you know, or maybe if we built the infrastructure, like China's doing, right? So the going in and buying up land, I mean, just like Bill Gates is buying up US farmland, now the largest owner of farmland in the US. I'm like, for what? To hand over to Native American people to manage properly and then pay them the money for it? I mean, or to give it for free? Is that, we're gonna get a surprise package at the end of this? Or is he gonna give all black people 40 acres and a mule who didn't get it when the South and Southern slave owners got their money or free land, you know? So there's all these benefits and advantages to being, uh, to have been, not now, but they all have exacerbated and caused the problems in the food system we're now dealing with. Like you can't solve the problem now without fully addressing the US base. And I, you know, global, I can't mess with that right now because I can't, I'm not going to Africa right now and, and growing food. Organizationally, we have to handle our, our, our homes, right? Our local areas, our regional food sheds. If we can each manage our food sheds more responsibly in the nation, there'd be a much better success for integrating and merging the ancient and the modern. So I'll stop there. Yeah, I'm sure we could. I feel like we keep getting deeper and deeper into the root of these problems. It's important to also look at the history and legacy of uh, colonialism and how that's still affecting things. We'll be back with more after this message. Dreaming of a long-awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. 
If you're ready to land a low fare, next level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. I wanted to turn back to that question of organic that Rob brought up. Um, you know, I think that's, you know, kind of a buzzword we see in the grocery store and don't always question. So I want to know, I guess, we'll start with you, Rob, what does organic mean? And, and does it really matter? Organically grown foods are grown without any synthetic man-made chemicals, fertilizers, pesticides. Um, and since, since those synthetic chemicals weren't invented until 1910, all of the food produced around the world up until 1910 was de facto organic. Uh, the, uh, the limitations of organic, uh, it, it's really not scaling up in the United States. Only 1% of harvested cropland in the United States is certified organic. Farmers, most commercial farmers do not like the organic standard because they can't use any synthetic right. nitrogen fertilizer. And that's the single most important contributor to agricultural productivity in the last in the last 100 years, uh, since uh, since very few farmers grow organically, uh, demand for organic isn't really satisfied in the marketplace. So, uh, the cost of organic produce is on average 54 percent higher than the cost of, of conventional produce. And and this gets back to my dietary health question: Would our dietary health improve if we switch to an all organic system? And I don't think it would. <laughs> the, the cost of healthy food would increase by, by half. And so already only one in 10 Americans eats enough fresh fruits and vegetables. If we switched to an all organic system, the consumption of fresh fruits and vegetables would go down because the price would be, would be so high. Uh, and actually there's, there's a related problem with uh, relocalizing uh, our, our food system. Right now, right now um, one third of all our vegetables are imported in the United States, and one half of our fruit is imported, and 80% of our seafood is uh, is imported. These are all healthy food items. We should be consuming more of all of these items. If we relocalized our food system and did without imports, um, the, the availability of fresh fruits and vegetables and seafood items would go down, the price would go up, and once again, our dietary health would, would not improve. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And Eddie, I'll, I'll get to you next. But Rob, I have a follow up question for you, because I also wanted to get at that question of, um, you know, local food versus imported. And, you know, I'm in Seattle, I've been eating produce imported from, you know, California and all over the world in my supermarket, um, just all winter. And so I'm wondering, you know, is that sustainable? Yes, <laughs> it is. If you're worried about uh, food miles and the, the greenhouse gas emissions from food transportation, uh, you, you have to remember that what matters isn't the distance the food travels. It's uh, the means of transport uh, and it's the load size. If you have uh, ocean freight uh, with large containers full of food, any single item of food is going to have a very small uh, carbon footprint, uh, no matter how far it travels on the ocean. On the other hand, if you have a small load size, if you go if you go to the farmer's market and buy 
half a dozen tomatoes, if you're driving your family car, and if you're driving five miles out and five miles back, and if those tomatoes were hauled in a pickup truck from, from a local farm five miles to the market and five miles back, the carbon footprint of each tomato is going to be huge. So it's not the distance food travels. You shouldn't worry about that. You should, you should be aware of how it travels and, and the load size. And I think fortunately, um, fortunately, uh, we, we have improved technologies for all those things. And the best estimate is in our uh, food system, all of the greenhouse gas emissions from our food system in the United States, only 4% come from, from food transport. Gotcha. That's good to know. Um, and Eddie, I want to hear your response to this too. What's what's your reaction to local and organic? So I'm a I'm I have worked in both and had conversations with folks in both both arenas, conventional and organic. And I um, I can say coming from a lot of conversations with um, local and national organization food organizations that are addressing people of color versus say tip, uh, Washington tilt or tilt alliance in in Washington more of a uh, standard uh, you know uh, dominant population white led uh, eco organization that, that promotes gardening and organic gardening not using chemicals or pesticides you know roundup things like that uh, and improving pollinator buffers, things like that, as part of their organizational work in Seattle, and has been has done great work. Had, did the, you know, has the um, organic movement, and I and I, I agree with you on the numbers of, about the uh, Robert about the the number of farmers that have moved to organic or non chemical or uh, low till no till. It is still extremely small and. One of the factors missing in that conversation is there are market forces like Cargill and Monsanto and and the Gates Foundation and other organizations at the highest level of economy, policy and government that work against and don't subsidize and don't, well, have now in terms of applications and getting people. But this this either or conversation continues to be continues to be absent of a whole systems conversation. It's like, okay, yes, you know, all local farms, everybody grows a garden in, in like in the war, Victory Gardens, everybody did it, right? So if we're looking at 1900 to 1930, folks <laughs> had a garden, folks, uh, regardless of nitrogen based, you know, if they use fertilizers, not most didn't. My great grandfather had a garden in his backyard in Chicago until he died um, uh, in his, upper 70s and every winter had jam every winter had pickled vegetables in the cabinet if there was a snowstorm they could eat something and in the summer we always had fresh salads and 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 vegetables you know a few three or four different vegetables tomatoes things like that so that the nutritive quality of the food that you're growing at home mm -hmm. impact the environment at a small level like you know the butterfly uh, the butterfly effect so, you know, if you grow an ecologically healthy environment on your property and socially take that responsibility and it spreads through the neighborhood, and then you've got a larger small farm, a half acre in the city or an acre, 
that's helping provide not just nutrition, but and opportunities for people to see it, like knowing who your police officers are in the neighborhood or your teachers, like the good old days, right? In the 1980s um, and the 70s. And I think the, the, the conversation for us is not either or, it's both and. Sometimes you have to use some chem, sometimes you get club root or root rot in the field and you have to offset it with lime or you have to offset it for a couple of seasons or let it go dormant. I think that the industrial meat production and you know commercial commodity farming is a a good old boys network gone gone haywire and those subsidies like you were saying robert and uh, um i've heard you say before about the um how food is actually subsidized to be more it's not less expensive for farmers it's more you know it's more expensive so farmers can get more money and it's a cabal the meat industry does the same thing the beef industry participates with these markets. It's not like beef farmers are like innocent players in this game. They are looking to exploit the, the, the needs as well, getting gouged on food because of Ukraine, because all of our wheat goes to Ukraine that they grow our wheat. Like, why don't we grow our own damn wheat? California is not going to be able to grow spinach for much longer. So why is Oregon and Washington, who can grow spinach 24 hours a day all year round, supply spinach for all the West Coast states and California stops growing fresh spinach. So we're going to have to make trades. We're going to have to change not just either or on chemicals or seeds or who's in control of the land, but how we create a more a broad spectrum. Again, urban agriculture is not going to solve our problem. Just like commodity farming and KFOBs are uh, uh, KFOB, the uh, feeding, the aggregated feeding uh, uh, places where they put cows and pigs and things like that without whole system regulatory shifts, whole systems understanding of how commodity foods are subsidized. Sugar, you know, like the, that conversation about the history of sugar and the abuse and use of sugar, these are things that, again, senators, not just companies, not just, it's just not the market driving people to eat like crap. It's Joe Manchin, it's other politicians who, despise any government control. It's a, a psychosis of, of wanting to do what we want. So again, you know, I go back to, it's a spiritual war for food and health. It's a mental and psychological combat about what to do. And it's also a physical land and spatial conversation. Like you, can, you can't have farms in a city because the land costs too much. No, it doesn't. You place that, pro that property in a place where it's not valued for the food it produces, it's valued for some real estate or commodity gain or equity, right? So similarly, economically, we have to change the way we value elements in the food system. Like if you have a garden in your, on your property and you have a pollinator, you should get a tax reduction on your house. On, on your, you know, there's, there's benefits that we can stick into places that don't have to do with arguing about chemicals or no chemicals. So no, more nutrition, yes, but Chemically, we know, we know the chemical loads right now in kids. We know what glyphosates are doing to women. We know what, you know, the benefits or lack of benefits that have come out of the last five or six years of global attempts to solve the food system. And again, I think one of the critical things we're leaving out is local economies, local and regional workers, farm workers, farm makers, farm producers, growers, the people that make the thing are still, it's like school teachers. They're still not valued at the level that we say they're important, but 
the government has not invested in giving every teacher a flat $80,000 salary and solving our education problem because it's just not about the money. It's about our thinking about what education is. And one more thing, everything I learned from my, this is a book, right? It's about everything you learn from your, in kindergarten is what you carry with the rest of your life. So my kindergarten teacher, um, I, I went to a really nice school as a child, uh, University of Chicago Laboratory School. Vivian Paley was my kindergartner teacher, one of the most famous, I now know, found out a couple of months ago, one of the most famous childhood education mm-hmm. instructors, uh, educators in the United States. And I'm like, okay, I was trained in that that school, Chicago school, in a lot of ways. And it has that urging and it's synthesis, right? So just as food works, I think we have to better synthesize and metabolize what we have and understand that certain things don't have metabolic properties like glycophosphates and GMO seeds or highly crispered whatever apples to make them square so you can put them in a box like in Japan with the gigantic grapes. There's, there's things we don't need to do or test with food. And food needs to be in the hands of the people that it is most close to to manage. Um, so I'll stop there. Definitely. Yeah. And I, I love what you were saying about, you know, it's not either or like we can integrate all of these solutions and um, it doesn't. Yeah, it's not just one or the other. There's a lot of choices. Um, and I wanted to go off of uh, what you're saying and look at one of the audience questions, um, which is about education and these issues we've been talking about today. Um, so the question is, um, we should be teaching these important connections and principles in our schools. Is anyone working on a sustainable curriculum? So um, I don't know. Rob, do you want to go first and sort of talk about how you see this, these conversations we've had today, how, how that could be better integrated into education? Yeah, well, I'm not a, I'm not a primary or secondary school uh, person, uh, uh, but uh, it's integrated now, of course, into, into, um, into college and graduate level work. Um, at the Harvard Kennedy School, um, someone I work with closely, uh, Bill Clark, has created a whole new field called sustainability science. And it's been a challenge to translate the the ideal of sustainability into a a disciplined scientific approach that's evidence-based, where you're not just uh, talking about uh, visions, (laughs) you're, uh, you're measuring progress Toward, uh, toward outcomes. So yes, uh, this is this is definitely uh, happening at the university level and at the graduate level in particular. Gotcha, that makes sense. And Eddie, do you have thoughts? Yeah, I think I, I, I think a lot um, a lot of the things, and this is this is something I'm saying a lot in the last 30 days, is like use Google. <laughs> people, it's like I'm telling so many people, they're like, how can I find this? I'm like, you know, there's this thing called Google, right? <laughs> we have all the information in the world, more information than we've ever had in the history of humanity that we know of. And yet our ability to find simple answers, it's amazing. So schools have been integrating uh, sustainability curriculum and, and hands-on experiences other, uh, already, farm to school. So there's been salad bars, there's been workshops, school gardens all over the Pacific Northwest and other cities, because this came out of New York. I mean, if you look at Will Allen with Growing Power, urban agriculture are using, urban agriculture is not growing because pe- people, you know, like wanted to do it. I think part of the reason that urban agriculture is just like during the Victory Gardens 
that education was a part of home, ec home economics was a class in school, right? Home, how do you manage your home economically? How do you manage the money and check? All those classes were taken out of the schools. Trade, trade programs are taken out of schools. You don't make bumper stickers anymore. You don't make t-shirts. You don't learn how to drill things together because of liability, right? So we have dumbed down and, and, and academicized, it's not a word I know, uh, we have infused the high, the, the high academy and replaced the high academy and the, the need for proof instead of understanding uh, and losing the connection with, with like, you know, how do farmers know that it's raining? I do it all the time. People are like, oh, it's going to rain in five minutes. They're like, how do you know that? And then it starts raining. It's like, I'm a farmer. I don't, I don't have a, media, a, a degree in meteorology. I don't. Uh, I didn't study the major sciences. I failed in chemistry three times. And yet I can still tell you when it's going to rain and how much it might rain. Why? Because I've been farming for 26 years. So I think there's a traditional knowledge that exists already that's waiting to be unpacked. I think kids already know that the earth is jacked up and we got to fix it. And I think a more practical application, um, like in Washington State, they have a thing called, and the school superintendent did it 10 years ago. Uh, out at Islandwood, um, it's called the C3 program. And it's all, you know, like, you know, like quadruple bottom line, right? It was triple bottom line. Now it's quadruple. And they added what? Culture and spirit, which is the things that original peoples or traditional peoples start with first. And it's the last thing that the Western economic model put into their, their, their model. So now, regardless of how you got to it, now the dominant economic system now knows that spirit and culture is necessary. So the infusion of these things would be a lot easier, just like an equity plan. We have to explain stuff to the dominant population, to the dominant academy. It needs data. Well, how do you know that place-based and people-based community building works? I don't know. Well, let's do that. You know, so I've learned to have this conversation and to hold these, these, these types of engagements because it's critical for people to know that schools are have already integrated sustainability. You have recycling programs at work. That's sustainability. What we need to do is highlight those things as a national emergency or a, you know, uh, beyond just saying we're going to end obesity, because you're not. A lot of people are going to be irresponsible. So how do we start to build social responsibility? How do we, how, not how do we, but how do we integrate sustainability in civics, sustainability in policy creation, sustainability in debate, instead of saying, you know, there is no climate change or there is no global warming. Okay, there may not be global warming, but something's changing. And regardless of what that is, let's look at the data. Let's also talk to the elders and the traditionals and let's work with the children, right? Like Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. I was in, in Chicago, it was mandatory. Black, white, everybody did Boy Scouts. Why? Then you create that social network where I can go to a place and meet people from all over the world and we can talk about merit badges, right? Like the environment. It was a, a different, different militaristic, mild, mildly militaristic way to approach and that's the United States. That's our history. We like that stuff. I joined the army. I'm a veteran. So served in Germany in the 80s on the border. And th those those it, things work better when the society is integrated and it's put into the system like toilet water. You know, everybody thinks you wake up in the morning, you expect the toilet to flush. We should do the same with sustainability and 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 and, and resilience from birth to death, we should be doing something in our society or have some part of it that's integrated in our education system and highlighted as part of how you manage 
like earth earth economics is that a home economics yeah definitely yeah and i appreciate um sort of the the practical skills and knowledge and social connections that you brought up definitely super important for education um amazingly i think we're already out of time i'm sure we could talk for another two hours about this um we could, but yeah. <laughs> it's been great talking to you both um, both Eddie and Rob. And, you know, I think this has given us all a lot to think about today. Or should I say chew on to squeeze in one, one little pun there at the end. Um, but Rob, Eddie, thanks so much for taking the time to talk today. One final comment on sustainability. My new book just won uh, an award, a Nautilus book award in the category of green and sustainability. So uh, check it out. Congratulations, man. Congratulations. I'm gonna write a book now. <laughs> <laughs> And that's it for today's episode. Thanks again to Eddie, Robert, and Kate for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was produced by Sarah Bernard and engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. And Chris Novich managed our audience engagement. You can subscribe to CrossCut Talks wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. It helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at CrossCut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to CrossCut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Baumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.